Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. Our guest today is Fabiola Rodriguez, a doctoral candidate at Tulane University, researching how different forms of coffee cultivation in northern Honduras impact bird species that spend the winter in these ecosystems. Originally from Tegucigalpa, Honduras, Fabiola studied biology at the National Autonomous University of Honduras and was able to join several field research projects after her third year, including in Casuco National Park with Opwal from 2010 to 2013. Starting as a camp manager with Opwal, Fabiola had the opportunity to try out numerous survey techniques on her first expeditions and eventually became extremely passionate about neotropical bird ecology in Central America. She has since completed a master's in biology in the U.S. and is pursuing a Ph.D., all while contributing significantly to avian science through numerous publications and constant outreach through seminars and conferences and educational opportunities for students and farmers in Honduras. We discuss how Fabiola became passionate about birds, what she loves most about being in the field, and how to understand how certain industries, in particular coffee production, impact the species that we share these spaces with. Thank you for joining us for Outball's Field Notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fabiola. Um, I guess to start out, since we're taping everything here from home, where are you based right now? So home for me is Honduras originally, but I am home currently is New Orleans, Louisiana in the United States, where I'm currently conducting a PhD program. Fantastic. Well, we're going to dig pretty deeply into your PhD in this conversation. So before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you first become inspired to become a scientist and make that decision? Yeah, so I think for me, since I was a child, I knew that I wanted something with uh, related to wildlife. And, you know, many ideas came to mind, maybe veterinary school. I wasn't as exposed to ecology or the field biology fields. But since that was the degree that was being offered in my hometown of Tegucigalpa, that's where I that's where I ended up. And as I was taking more and more courses in this program, I just really enjoyed the idea of ecology, you know, just studying these interactions of living organisms and their natural systems. Being that Honduras is a very rich place in ecosystems, to me, it just felt like I could do so much, you know. So, yeah. I would say that's when I really thought I would like to be a scientist. That's awesome. And what an amazing place to become a scientist, obviously, with incredibly unique landscapes and ecosystems that you have in Honduras. Obviously, Opal has been working in Honduras for many years, and it's one of our biggest sites, specifically in Kisuko National Park, where you worked with us for several years, especially and, and quite near to the start of that project. So where were you in your career at the point that you started working with Opwal? And I guess kind of what impact did that experience have on your career? Wow. So I have to say that when I was on my 
it, during my undergraduate, I was always looking for opportunities to volunteer and learn, get hands-on experiences. We didn't have a lot of those opportunities. And somehow I learned through this course that OPWL, uh, was, you know, giving opportunities to people in Honduras to just, you know, go participate in the in the field season and and just, you know, be able to volunteer, learn what everything was about. But we also uh, helped a lot with the logistics. So initially, I did a little bit of learning, but I also camp managed and did some translation. So it's a very, uh, like, that was my, my entry. And I think that I was probably what you consider a junior in your university or in your in your undergraduate years so like the third of a four-year program yeah, third year okay, yeah got it so at that point I still wouldn't say I, I had a, a, a whole lot of knowledge of of science but seeing all these scientists or researchers just asking questions about different taxonomic groups was very inspiring and motivational for me and from that point point I was like if I can come back and try to like test some of these own ideas and you know go from there so for me Apple was a platform for learning uh, and for testing first ideas of field research and for that I'm very I'm very grateful actually that's awesome so it so when you started I guess you weren't necessarily even on the research side as much it sounds like you were really doing a lot of the kind of field management but you had the opportunity to see what field research was like being in the field alongside these scientists and actually test your hand in it. So by the end of the time you were working with Opal, did you take part in some of the research? Uh, yes, I would say that I don't even remember at this point how many field seasons I participated in, but I would say so that my first year, I just uh, dipped my toe on the different research types. You know, I went out with, you know, how in Opal you have the different teams that work on specific taxonomic groups. So I learned how right. you survey amphibians and reptiles, how uh, birds got surveyed, and how insects got surveyed. And from my previous courses, I always had this uh, interest, particular interest in, in birds and avifauna. Uh, I think that tropical avifauna is so interesting, like the different families, especially the ones present in Kasuka National Park. I consider them fascinating in their behaviors and and also I thought I thought at that point uh, very understudied. So, so I was going to be there to discover all of these things <laughs> about their ecology. Um, I think so, we all start with the idea of discovering things, right? Before realizing yes. that a lot of people have studied things before. <laughs> yes. Yes, then you discover that you so that question got asked back in the 80s and you <laughs> to modify it a little bit but that's still part of the process and and now with my PhD I I, I, I still I I still like uh, you know going back to like initial questions or just letting my imagination go with whatever question I have well I think that makes a good segue into talking a little bit more about what your PhD is about and kind of where you are in the research process today yes so well, like I mentioned, Apple was this uh, platform for me to to learn about bird survey techniques, and I got the opportunity to propose what in Kusuka now is um, a constant mist netting effort, which is one of the methods that we use um, more frequently. But I didn't get to study cloud forest birds like like I dreamt of at that point. But 
I, I just want to stop you for one second to make sure we explain for people who might not know what misnetting is, just kind of how that works and why we might use that methodology. Yes, that's a great question. So uh, like I mentioned, you know, in OPL expeditions, you have different types of focused surveys. So to survey the bird richness, diversity, or ask other questions related to bird ecology, scientists use in Kusuko particularly something known as the point count method which means that the researchers go to different pre-established locations and record for a specific amount of time all the bird species that they can identify by here or if or visually and to complement that uh, you you cannot get a lot of information just from determining which birds are there some things like a bird's body condition or you know it's it's status it's health condition or which of those individuals are young juveniles or adults which are females or males those kind of things you can't really tease apart only with point counts so the myth netting methodology is a good one to tackle a lot of these questions from uh, information that you can get uh, of the bird in the hand if you do it constantly, then you have a good image of how, you know, members of the population, like I said, the juveniles, adults, through time. And in Kusuko, we were also banding these birds. So we were marking them with aluminum uh, bands that have uh, unique identifiers. And so as these birds get caught year after year, you can measure other things such as uh, yearly survival. So that's how those two methodologies complement themselves well. Perfect. Okay, that's awesome. Thanks for going back on that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your discussion of your oh, PhD. No so so what I know you it sound you established the mist netting in Opwall and then obviously you've gone on to do a master's. Yes. So when I was uh that's one of the, the motivations is that I saw graduate school as this path to be able to keep learning and to test some of these own ideas with that personal goal of I, if I can, I'll still do the research in Honduras with, you know, the research questions in Honduras. Um, so my PhD project isn't conducted in Kusuka National Park. Uh, my project is conducted in the Department of Yoro. So Kusuka National Park is in the Department of Cortes. Department of Yoro is more of like a northern central department. And I conduct research outside of protected areas and private lands in a coffee growing region. Um, so this is, in reality, it's like a working landscape where you have the agriculture, the people, and biodiversity within forest patches that remain. So that's where I conduct my research now. And my research question, or well, my main topic is the ecology of migratory birds that breed in North America, but they overwinter in Central America and the tropics and they use these working landscapes. So I'm studying different components of these migratory birds' habitat use to evaluate how can they be sustained in these working landscapes since they're using them. Just because they're there, it doesn't mean that they're doing well and they are experiencing precipitous declines. So that's why it's also an important question for the conservation of birds. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's what's so interesting about your research is obviously you have this really strict ecology science side that connects to a bigger conservation question of how we're taking care of these birds. 
Um, I have to ask before we go on, obviously, a quick question of whether or not this last year, 2020, has impacted your research plans at all, being able to get into the field. Yes, fortunately, when so to study migratory birds in their non-breeding or overwintering period, this period encompasses the months of November to March in, in Honduras. So that's the northern winter and the birds are here during that period. And, you know, by January, we're in the field. It's still like a location that is pretty, it's not, it's not the city. You know, you have these mountains. We didn't have a lot of internet signal. So anytime we could catch the news, we heard about COVID, but <laughs> it was so far away in our thoughts. And it wasn't until the end of the field season, so March, when, you know, the country shut down the borders and we couldn't all of a sudden move freely from town to town. So even within the towns and cities of Honduras, you couldn't move from one place to the other. We had to wait to have permits to move away from our field uh, site back to our homes. So that's how it, it didn't impact the data collection. We were done. Uh, so that's fortunate. But we were there for the beginning <laughs> of the pandemic. Well, you're lucky, I guess, that you were able to get in the field-based data collection right before things shut down. And were you able to get back to the United States okay? I was in Honduras for a couple of weeks. I think that we just had to wait for, at first they were only uh, people that were able to, to go back to the United States or to wherever country or people that, you know, that, that lived there. And I had family, I had just finished a field season. So I stayed with my family for around three weeks. And then I did eventually get back here. Perfect. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> so I guess, obviously, you're partway through your PhD right now. What are kind of the first findings that you're starting to come across about the connection between the health of these migratory bird populations and the working lands, in particular, the coffee farming in the north of Honduras that you're looking at? So just to give a little bit more context, in this coffee-growing region where we have the agricultural lands of the coffee production and then the forest, within the coffee, we have different forms of production. So for those people that, that don't know, coffee can be grown, coffee is a, is a plant that's like a shrub, and it can be grown in a monoculture style where you just have the coffee plant and then you have no shade. Uh, then you have a midway point where there is more of a vegetation structure uh, to the coffee plot because you have the coffee plant and then you have shade trees in the same system. So that's what we know as shade coffee plants, uh, shade coffee farms. In the region where I work, I have the opportunity to be part of this initiative led by the Mesoamerican Development Institute, and they promote a third way, which is a mixture of any type of coffee farm, but conservation of forest on the side. So this coffee farm spares forest. Instead of trying to integrate the trees as a conservation measure, they try to promote uh, forest or regeneration of a plot in the property of that uh, producer. And this is known as integrated open canopy with the idea and vision that then outside of protected areas, if you were to have all of these farms or any other system, not coffee only, 
uh, with patches of forest that could create a connectivity, uh, this could generate forests that have been lost in these regions. You know, we have, we, we continue to lose forests in Honduras. So I study what this could mean for migratory birds. I have colleagues that study what this could mean for uh, other taxonomic groups like bats, mice, uh, etc. And some of, I focus on two bird species um, that from just past research that has taken place there, we selected them because we can definitely see them with frequency and they're also good models because they are experiencing these declines I, I mentioned earlier. And what I found is that the farms themselves, so like the types of like the types of farms, so between shade and this other farm that does have a forest patch, it doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be a significant difference in the body mm. condition that the birds are experiencing. But I still see that some birds are doing better. Maybe they have a higher weight or have a higher muscle score, which is something we also uh, try to measure on the bird in hand or fat deposits by exploring, you know, their, the fat content that you can see through the skin. And so the next question is, if, if what's the farm itself isn't what contributes or what makes these, uh, these metrics vary, but if what's around the farms is more influential. So uh, we are conduct we are using satellite images to try to generate these maps around the farm, and we're going to quantify how much forest or how much of other habitat types, maybe pasture land or other crops, are around the farm, and see if that can explain this variation in 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 the perf we call it the performance of the migratory birds because we think about their abundance, their fitness, their survival. So we're just encompassing all of those in the one term of performance. And so we're trying to, to in that we're in the phase of analysis. One thing we have found is that for, two, for the two years that we have been working there, most of the birds that we catch tend to be juveniles and very few females. So Recently, that is uh, that has taken a lot of importance because if females, for instance, are using a different type of area and we don't know where they are, then we can't really conserve female habitat if they're using different types of habitat. So I also think that it contributes to understand which members of the bird population are using this particular working landscape. Wow, that's very interesting and complex. So it sounds you were able to basically see that the shade grown and this integrated forest had relatively similar impact on the birds, but there's these minor differences that you're seeing that you're trying to kind of piece apart where exactly those are coming from based on what's around them. So what's your kind of ultimate goal with the research that you're undertaking right now? What are the bigger implications about either, you know, biodiversity in agriculture or coffee farming specifically? Yes, I think that my research is but one component that of a of a, a larger vision we have with my collaborators at MDI. So you can think of it you can think of it as there there are these two main research questions that we're interested in in this region. One is how does the working landscape that conserves forests such as these IOC systems sustain biodiversity? But on the other hand, since it's a working landscape and people depend on it, what are the benefits of protecting biodiversity in these forests to producers and to people? So when you flip the question like that, uh, you think about 
uh, how the forest can be providing ecosystem services. So goods that benefit the humans, such as when you conserve forest, you have water. When you conserve forest, you may be conserving groups of uh, animals that actually benefit you. Maybe they prey upon a pest that you have in your in your crop, for example. So ultimately, the idea is that we have this research and we can compile it all and better understand how it works. I also have to mention that other research regarding migratory birds has taken place. And it, one of my mo motivations to look into this idea of performance in more detail is that collaborators before me found that in the shade coffee farms, uh, migratory birds weren't persisting as much, meaning they were more nomadic. When a bird is found in a coffee in a shade coffee farm, they were tracked with radio telemetry, they would then move much more. And literature and migratory birds tell us that it's likely that a bird will stay if that place is 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 uh, optimal, you know. So that's why I'm trying to like right. probably uh, forward the understanding of migratory bird ecology by just contributing like how is it that it's acting if it's something that is not, you know, positive or influencing positive things for the migratory birds. So so yeah. It's ongoing and hopefully we'll have a what I said here just as a disclaimer is preliminary. <laughs> Of course, I'm yes, still, completely understand. I'm still analyzing things and yes, said by out. a true scientist. <laughs> Nothing is final until it's published. Completely understood. Obviously, I understand that these are, you know, the the start of your final implications, but it fits into this greater picture for both migratory birds and for farmers, hopefully in Honduras. So obviously, you brought up the point of ensuring that the conservation work of these forests around the farms actually benefits the agricultural communities that surround or that are kind of using these working lands, um, which is a reality for many, many areas that are biodiversity hotspots around the world. So I guess I have a two part question, which is kind of why is it important to include these rural communities in the conversation that you're having about bird conservation? And then also, how do you communicate this work to these communities um, in a way that obviously incorporates them in the conversation productively. Yes. So I think that for that, I have to say that as a standalone ecologist, I think that this would be much more hard for me and I don't know how successful I would be. So partnerships are key. For me, this partnership with the Mesoamerican Development Institute, whom has thought about coffee production from that standpoint and what makes the coffee production unsustainable. So it could be moving forest so that we have sun coffee, or it actually could be drying the beans by using wood that comes from the forest. When we tend to think about sustainable coffee, we oftentimes don't think of that portion of the production chain, but it's just as important because it's also using the forest. So there's already this initiative, as I mentioned, that has thought about these steps. And from the point of view of the economics, then their solution or their proposal is if farmers voluntarily have these integrated open canopy farms that spare forest, and then this coffee can be dried in a solar hybrid dryer, which is their second, um, their second part of the scheme, then we can sell this coffee, and the brand is called Café Solar, uh, at a better price, but also at a sustainable price. So I don't, I'm not a 
an expert in coffee economics, but I do know that from conversations with the producers that coffee price is very volatile. So it's, it's, it's tough for the producers. Sometimes they invest in the farm and they don't get that return. You know, sometimes they lose from it. So see, that's something that I am not trained for. <laughs> but thinking about how to embed science to conservation initiatives like this one, I think that that's, that's, that's my role. And so as a scientist, I work in private lands and the conversation looks like first introducing ourselves to the producers and telling them what we're doing, being very honest, socializing the project is something I have learned is important since I think that my last projects have all been in private lands. So you can't really do, you know, it's different from working in a reserve where all you need is right. probably the permit of the institution. And then, yes, you need a contact with the community, of course. But it's it's more key when you're working in private lands. For obvious reasons, you're not going to go into yes, somebody's you're on someone's house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's, that's one moment. Our conversations tend to be very casual. You know, we're very welcomed. Wherever I've worked, we've been very welcome. People are interested in sharing their knowledge about how things used to be. Maybe they see themselves differences in the climate or in how much coffee they used to produce. The length of the coffee picking season has changed for them from when they were kids. They would cut coffee for a longer month. Now it's reduced and likely it's effects of climate change. So I think it's 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 important. Part of our team members as well, so speaking to the involvement of community members and national scientists, is that uh, our team is, you know, is from Honduras. We have a researcher that's from one of the communities, and he is probably one of the most knowledgeable and, like, he has so much uh, talent to work with these uh, methods and these skills we use in, in the field. So it's a little bit of everything. I would say. I think that's a really great takeaway that you bring up about partnerships and looking for people who can fill different parts of the conversation. As you obviously talked about having colleagues who are researching different parts of how these farms are affecting different taxa, but then also, of course, people who can foster the conversation. And you actually anticipated my question about what, what percentage of your team was from Honduras, it sounds like a big, per, you know, the, the vast majority of them are Honduran scientists, which must make a pretty significant impact on your ability to have those conversations. Yes, it does. And, and, and it's funny to think about it because you think that because I'm Honduras, I'm going to these national parks and areas and it's like, I'm still not from the region. I'm still, in a way, I'm still an outsider and you still have to be very sensitive and respectful of people's customs and how, you know, and, and, and what they're doing and just approach your work in a very respectful, respectful way. I mean, that's, I, at least that's something that for me is very important. It's like a, like one of my principles or ideals when I go and do this work, but, but yeah. <laughs> that's a great, that's another great point. I think about, you know, again, obviously you're working on a private land area, which means you have to take it into account more, but I think that's something that scientists and in particular field ecologists need to take everywhere they go. So I was actually going to ask you kind of then, you know, what portion of your work is still in the field and, and what's your favorite part about working in the field? Oh, so I think that in a way, sadly, my field component ha is, is done for now. 
until I think of the next project and the next research question. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's no no more field for me. One of the things I like, and I think about all of my field experiences, you know, in this place, which is a coffee farm, Kusuko, and you know other ecosystems of Honduras, and there are moments where you're doing your survey that you have this realization of, I am in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and it's so beautiful, and it's so peaceful, and I just love moments like that. I feel very appreciative of being able to do something. So those 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 are my favorite moments. I also embrace the difficulties. I, it's I'm a little strange in that sense. I like the monotony and the rigorosity of we have to do these surveys this way and wake up at this time, repeat them this amount of times, enter the data by this day. So <laughs> I I kind of enjoy it. And I don't have a problem with being without the internet or phone signal for extended periods of time. So, so yeah, I think that all of it's a package, the whole package. I think all of us who spend a good deal of the year in the field are a, a self-selecting and slightly masochistic <laughs> yes. crew. Um, I completely agree and empathize with everything you've just said. Um, it sounds like you love it all, but are there any kind of major challenges that you feel when you're in the field? So, yes. I mean, I think that I would say that there are mental challenges for sure sometimes, you know. At the end of the day, you're still away from your home unless you actually are one of those few lucky people that live on a field station year-round and that's your home. But you're away from home and loved ones and there are moments where I think you oftentimes when you feel for me there as a as a scientist and usually in the recent projects where I am proposing the research I designed the the survey methods the challenging moments for me are thinking or getting in my head of what if I am missing a huge variable that then is not going to allow me to give an honest picture of this research and then that just becomes this big snowball. <laughs> I try to forget it, but and I'll, I move on from it. But that's challenging. It's challenging. I can see how in. that would. I could see how that could get particularly bad when you're relatively isolated with no internet access, nothing really to distract you from your thoughts. It can very easily spiral out of control when you're in the field. So, I I can imagine how that goes. Well. Obviously, you have an extremely exciting career ahead of you. What you've done so far, I think, is really inspiring and, and very interesting to see how ecology research can be connected to these conservation outcomes. And obviously, we'll be very excited to see what happens with the final results of your uh, dissertation and what you end up finding about the difference between these working farms. Um, obviously, a lot, I think a lot of people listening are kind of just starting out their conservation career. So I wanted to ask you kind of, what advice you have for people who are interested in starting a career in conservation and or ecology, and maybe even if you have any advice that you would have liked to give your younger self as you were getting into this career? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I'm sure I'll get better ideas once <laughs> I'm done talking to you. But no, I think that I'll connect it to, to my experience because I can speak probably better from my experience. Everybody's backgrounds is is different but I think that one thing is that try and I will emphasize the try because of this difference in backgrounds to get involved to discover things that you like 
and things that you don't like. Because ecology now can mean so many things. It can be being in the field, but it can also be a lot of computational aspects to it. Or there could be lab work if you want to marry the two fields and do field work, collect data, and then work in a lab with the with the genetics, you know. So I would say if you have the opportunity to to get in contact, be it with a lab group or and if you're you do so and if you're in a country like like Honduras um, and there are fewer opportunities, but you still have access. And now we lived in I see the difference now compared to when I studied of a better access to reach out to people and and research right. groups. With COVID, we saw this, I at least detected this like boom in ecology seminars and things that before would only be closed for like conference attendees. So I would say use that opportunity to find out who's doing what and is that something that interests you and try to try to reach out to those people because you never know. Some people are creative and they can tell you, okay, so maybe I can be a mentor from afar, or maybe you can go and collect this data, or I can oversee a project that you have. And, you know, maybe that can lead to a, a future position somewhere or gaining experience. So I would say, find out what you like and look for those opportunities. I think that's, and, that's yeah. great advice. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I think I was thinking about what would I tell a younger self? I think I would go... I would, even though I'm not going to listen to this advice, I would tell, don't worry about that mental, did you forget the variable? Because <laughs> at the end, there's also this nice realization. I look back on my master's research and, and I, and I see, oh, wow, that was not bad. You know, that was good. I was, I was on the good path. So reward yourself and recognize that you're probably doing better than you think. <laughs> Both of those, I think, are really good pieces of advice. Celebrating the small wins or the big wins, whatever they are, I think obviously applies anywhere. But also, you know, networking, getting to know people seems like and I think it, it does seem even more accessible now that everyone is virtual and everyone's online wondering what they should do um, and, and getting to talk to people from different fields is, is an opportunity that seems to have come out of this at least more than it might have been before. Well, before I kind of go into my finishing questions. I This question is almost a bit personal, but I think a lot of people might be wondering this as well. It's just, obviously we think about shade-grown coffee as the ethical, more ethical coffee option, but it sounds like there's still some questions about that. Is there, do you have any advice for looking for kind of ethical or bird-friendly coffee to make sure that we're consuming things that are good for the environment? Yes, I think that uh, so first, yes, you're right. We still need to learn a lot. There there have there has been research that has shown some benefits of shade compared to sun coffee. So I always like to think of it as a gradient. You know, it's like you have sun coffee, then probably there's no biodiversity there. Then you have shade coffee and you can sustain better, you know, bird flocks that are foraging on the trees and maybe other biodiversity. And then you have patches that are preserving forests and that will add some value to it. So let's think of coffee also in this and maybe cacao and other things is, is this gradient of less complex and maybe not optimal to better and better. So there are already out there some options if you want to better consume coffee. Especially, I love coffee, so <laughs> yes, I, I look for these options anytime I can. 
And it depends on where you are, sadly. Uh, so I would say that if you if you live in the tropics and you can see where the region where they're growing the coffee and you see that it's a shade farm or that it's a farm that has good good practices, then you locally get it that way. Now, if you're in a place like in the United States, then you can actually order coffee from if you want this Honduran style, for example, you can go to Cafe Solar dot dot uh, com or dot org and cafe solar is this brand of coffee that protected forest and was dried with the solar hybrid dryer instead of using more forest wood but the smithsonian migratory bird center an institution in the united states that has done research on migration for many years also has its own certification of shade-grown coffee, where the shade coffee farm has to meet certain requirements. So maybe it's not just have shade, it's have certain percentage of shade, it's have maybe different levels of trees, so higher trees, a mid canopy, and a specific diversity of trees. So if you go to the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center webpage and you search for the coffee, and you enter your zip code, you can also see which supermarkets sell that kind of coffee. So this is a movement. The Smithsonian is also leading a movement called the Bird Friendly Coalition for the Western Hemisphere of the globe, just for now. And it's trying to put front and center initiatives where bird conservation is considered, not only for coffee, but for cacao, beef buildings because of window collisions. So, you know, definitely keep your ears open for for these type of, of things. Excellent. Well, I can pop those links in the show notes for people listening Excellent. so that they can go buy their coffee at sustainable places and help protect birds and maybe not just coffee, cacao as well. Well, I, I just wanted to end with a couple more questions to end on a positive note because I worry always that conservation ends up being this really dreary con com conversation about things that are going poorly in the world. And obviously there's a lot of great work being done. So I wanted to ask you kind of why you keep on fighting to protect biodiversity and prevent climate change and what really kind of gets you out of bed in the morning to work on these projects. Oh, <laughs> I think that so understanding that I am not on those front lines, right? Like I'm not on the front lines of uh, the conservation itself, but right. contribution and contributing in the sense of responsibility to contribute is what gets me up. Knowing that if I can, if this research maybe can be a platform, even if it is just to have that conversation with the one producer and maybe share my research techniques with other Hondurans, or it can be something as simple as translating a document, I will get up and do that. And I, that's why I also participate on, I try to participate with working groups and initiatives that, that maybe just need that. Sometimes, sometimes you just need to be the person that does things behind, you know, like organization and things. So contribution is what gets me up, I would say, because other people are doing a lot of good work and we need to help them. That is such a great point. And I think that's something that everyone should take away from this is that there's really no thing too small, right, that you can help with, whether just contributing your skills and your time, whether it's appearing on this podcast or, you know, translating an article, as you said, or volunteering to help some organization, social media, doing these small projects is, is really important and 
is a massive contribution to the overall effort. Um, well, my last question, obviously, I know you said you weren't going into the field for a while now, but what are you most looking forward to next time you do get to go into the field? You know, I think that every time, just just the, those moments that I told told you about, just just I look forward to to just being in the center again of these these natural systems and just being surrounded by nature and just just being. <laughs> I look forward to that, and I get a lot of. Uh, I know that whenever I go with that mindset, I always have good experiences, you know, good good stories or good animals that I spot. Maybe not my study species, but other things what's, that you get to see. What's the best thing you've seen? Well, in Kusuko, I had some of the best sightings. I saw a peccary once, and uh, that's, yeah, it's like a big hog-like, yeah. you know, creature. <laughs> and it, I was doing a point count. We were very, we're up very early, and it smelled so, so intense. I was like, oh, man. And then I saw the, I saw a big peccary just zoom in front of me, and then a little one following it. And I was like, oh, I'm so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so that's amazing. One of the, that's one of the... That's one of the good ones, but I've had many. I think those moments are the ones that keep us coming back. It's that element of surprise and not knowing what you're going to see is, is always really exciting. Yes. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Fabiola. Thank you so much for joining us for the Field Notes podcast. And Thank you. Um, good luck with the rest of your PhD. Well, you too. And I look forward to, to hearing this. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best as well. Thank you for tuning in to Upwell's Field Notes. We hope you learned something new and were inspired by Fabiola's work to protect migratory birds and ensure local communities are empowered to support conservation. Stay tuned for more episodes about conservation in other biodiversity hotspots around the world coming soon to Upwell's Field Notes.